Welcome to In the Spotlight. This is a podcast brought to you by the Guild of HR Professionals in association with Lace Partners. Hello and welcome to this latest In the Spotlight podcast brought to you by the Guild of HR Professionals and in partnership with Lace Partners. My name is Chris Howard. I'm Marketing Director at Lace Partners and this podcast is designed for the HR community. And in this series of podcasts that we feature, some of the most experienced professionals in the HR industry. And we're talking about some of the latest critical thinking that's going on. Uh, And at this time of obviously COVID-19 uncertainty that we're living in, this is all about providing a, a voice for HR profession, HR professionals, and to hear what their peers are talking about as well. You know, we may all be stuck at home, but of course we're not alone. So having that peer network is is quite an important thing. And I'm not alone today. Otherwise, it would just be me talking into my microphone. Um, I am joined by some guests today. I've got Stephen Sidebottom, who's a global leader, HR leader, uh, and has worked both international and emerging markets. Hello, Stephen. How are you doing? Hi, Chris. I'm very well indeed. Thank you. Good to hear. And I've also got Claire Haywood on today's podcast. Claire, you have many hats. I'm going to let you go first and explain to us what those hats are. And then we'll find out a little bit about Stephen's background, if that's all right. Well, it's actually quite warm today, so I haven't actually physically got one on. But um, <laughs> so, um, yes, my name's Claire Haywood and I am the growth director for Cirrus, which is a talent leadership and engagement consultancy. Um, I'm also chair of the Cheshire and Warrington LEP. And uh, we have 43,000 businesses in Cheshire and Warrington and have spent a lot of the last few weeks listening very much to what is going on for them, given the crisis that we're currently in. So if you don't mind, I might skip between two hats. And uh, Stephen and I have also had an opportunity to to work with uh, similar organisations. So hopefully we can get the chance to share some of that experience as well. Yeah, and that's a good segue, actually. So, Stephen, do you want to just give us a little bit of background on your uh, your HR and career industry experience, too? Sure. I, I mean, I've had, as you said, for us, many years of uh, uh, global head of HR experience in financial services. That's my, my background. Um, I'm now a member of the Court of the Guild. I'm vice chair of the credit union, um, and I work as a board advisor with a particular focus on organizational change and high performance. Cool. So, Today's podcast, so today's HR Guild podcast that we've obviously been speaking about this briefly um, off air is about agile leadership. So what I wanted to do is just have a chat with you both about agile leadership. You know, what does it mean? What are the implications? What's the impact of of it during this current sort of global crisis? So uh, I will start. Let's start with ladies first, Stephen, if you don't mind. Um, so Claire, can you just give us a bit of an overview for the for our listeners? You know, the concept of agile leadership, if that's all right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So a lot of people talk about agile um, and um, often they're referring to a specific process. But actually, when we're referring to agile leadership, we're taking into consideration the process, the agile process, if you like, and the scrums that people talk about. But actually, we are talking about creating, enabling a culture of agility and the impact that that needs to have on the culture and the organization and the customers and really that's primarily the focus and quite often when we talk about agile leadership we will be referring to a bit of a paradox because for a really good and competent agile leader you both need a disruptor and a disruptive 
environment, but also you have to be able to enable and make sure that you can um, make, you know, put into place and implement some of those elements to enable an agile culture to operate. And right now, we definitely have a global disruptor going on and we just need to make sure that we're putting in some of those enabling elements as well. And Stephen and I can perhaps talk those through shortly, but we talk often about that agile paradox, the enabler and the disruptor. Yeah. So Stephen, from your side, anything to add on that from a perspective of agile leadership? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, as Claire said, uh, um, it's not an outcome in itself. It's a, it's a, it's a way of becoming a high performing organization and a challenge about how to how to get there and what the journey looks like how to create a system that works in that way i suspect we will spend some time talking about this agile paradox uh, which is the balance as, as i said between disruption and, and, and enabling and one of the features of the current situation is that we move from a situation of uncertainty to a situation of crisis and crisis is when you have a threat. I mean, in, in many ways, an existential, well, for many organizations, an existential threat. And that generates a set of behaviors in its own right. And, and we can perhaps explore a little bit about what those behaviors are and how that makes that paradox so much more acute and how the very short-term reactions and the longer-term actions really, really stand in direct contrast. Fundamentally, how do you cope with the existential threat today and how do you prepare for an unknown tomorrow? I mean, that's how it really throws it into very high relief. Yeah, yeah. And actually, um, Stephen, I think you make a really good point because when you talk about leadership in crisis and what do people actually need right now, they will require clarity you know, and need as much clarity as possible given the context in which I'm operating in. And then people really need to have meaning. You know, how do we make sense of what is actually going on, you know, what is going on around us. And then also, you know, as a leader, we need to make sure that we are also empathizing, understanding what it's like, you know, how as a self-employed person or as a leader of an organization or a remote team, what does it feel like right now? And Quite often, we're finding that a lot of our clients and organisations we're listening to, it's extraordinarily tough. And um, and I think we need to create an environment to enable people to talk about that quite openly. You know, managing, managing their cash for some of the smaller businesses, you think if you're in tourism or retail at the moment, it's extraordinarily stressful. So if you've got clarity and meaning, but you also need to be as a leader, able to understand the situation people are in. So you can help help with that understanding, really. And, and we also know from behavioural theory um, how how people respond to that crisis, a threat crisis. Um, and what it leads to is naturally is narrower thinking. So people will go full back on well-practiced efficiency skills. They'll go back to things they've done in the past. They'll focus on the known. And by that same token, creativity and flexibility are seen as an unnecessary elaboration on the how do we get through today. They'll look upwards. So they look to leaders for direction. Leaders have to be strong through times like this. And strength is highly valued. But there's also a pressure to collaborate, to conform. So suddenly dissent goes, disagreement goes. It's seen as expensive and potentially the wrong kind of disruptive. And you'll get, you'll find that there's a tendency to coalesce around solutions. 
are sometimes the first available solution and not the best one. So in crisis, leaders have to look the part, they have to step up, they have to be energetic, but they also have to be particularly recognize that this dependence on them for direction is a real double-edged sword. And in fact, pushing agency, pushing accountability, pushing innovation, it would seem to be disruptive and yet it's so important the framing of future opportunity yeah and, and, and do you know what's been quite incredible is um i mean i'm uh, lucky in many ways to have the opportunity to hear so many different voices um in the in the lep role and also as cirrus because we work right across sectors and if you think how each sector has been impacted so so differently you know for some this is a huge opportunity so if you think about the education and health sector that piece that you just mentioned Stephen around innovation and the fact that they've accelerated that digitization across those sectors where if you you could argue they were behind other sectors whereas now they have absolutely jumped forward, they're making decisions much quicker than they have done in the past, and they have had to come up and push the envelope quite significantly on utilising technology, basically, to deliver. And the other thing which I'm finding amazing listening to some extraordinarily innovative businesses is how people have have done that flip to virtual. So if I think about some of our clients, you know, a number of them still were working with the virtual environment, but some really weren't. And it's only taken them eight weeks to do that flip. Mm. And, you know, if we would never have got to this place. So in many ways, some of that cultural change that was required and that pushing on some of that decision making, which was slow and it has happened very quickly. And I'm hoping we don't lose some of that collaborative, innovative elements. Um, and, and it's so amazing, isn't it, to see the, the process by which people adapt so hugely fast and so effectively. I just play out in front of us and you see it not just in one place. You think that's great. That's, that's a massively good example that we could share elsewhere. Everyone in, in, here is being forced to, to, to rethink how they work. And the number of people who are now working uh, remotely is astonishing. Um, and yeah. of course, the transition that becomes really interesting is a move from working at home to a working anywhere. I was uh, I was on a webinar with a, a, a CEO of one of the UK's biggest private businesses yesterday, and he was talking about working from home and wanting to tr- transition back to working in the office. And I was just really interested that that, that very old paradigm, because people are working from home because they're required to, they're working remotely because it turns out you can, and it was just barriers to that change. And we've had a massive acceleration of that. And in many cases, it's a lot better. Not everything. I mean, you still need the social, you still need to see people. Offices and coming together still has purpose, but it's not the reason for work. The reason for work is to achieve some extraordinary outcomes, and you can do it from yeah. anywhere. This is now well, proof. Actually, if you think about agile leadership, and uh, so if we talk about the disruptor element before and disruptive thinking, and that often, you know, it's all about challenge and ideation and thinking about actually, how do I still service my customer? And often we've been thinking about the competitive threat. You know, how am I better serving my customer than anybody else, whatever business you're in? Whereas now with this crisis, let's call it that, an economic crisis and a health crisis, 
we're, we're challenging ourselves as businesses to say, actually, how do I still serve my customer, but in a very different way to make sure that one, the business survives, but secondly, I still have to be out there. So a lot of that disruptive thinking, that challenge and ideation has, has been fantastic. But we also now need to move it into that next piece. You know, how are we going to plan for recovery? You know, what mm. is plan going to be and what are we going to be doing so that we mm. can move on and then learn and learn from that and then keep coming back around on that circuit. Can I ask you both a question, actually? In your opinion, is there any sort of characteristics of successful businesses that are, that you've seen that are sort of ag- from an agile leadership perspective? Are there any sort of characteristics that you could spot from businesses that you've been working with or been talking to? Yeah, I think um, there's there's a number uh, of elements and characteristics. And I think utilising that language is, is a really helpful one. So um, those organisations that are prepared to create a culture where we talk about learning agility, where you're able to try things out. So we, you know, the language people have been using over the last few years is fail fast and learn. But actually, is it genuine? Are you genuinely enabling your teams to fail fast and learn? Because right now they are going to have to learn. And I always love the James Dyson. Uh, we listen to, to him. You know, he talks about actually, you know, there were 5,000 failures before he got to the one success. And we have to embrace that fail fast and learn approach, particularly right now. We're not going to get it all right. And a lot of organizations don't in the first instance. But so learning agility is also about working in a multi-skilled environment. But going back to something Stephen also said is that importance around, you know, with that working from home, working working from the office, something about feeling safe is really important. And people are talking about psychological safety. But creating an environment where you are trusted. I've just been speaking to a software company and um, and they've just completed a team agility profile and as part of some research that we're doing with Manchester Business School. And in essence, they were saying that that level of trust has actually gone up because what they've realized is that people are still delivering them more productive. They're talking to their teams more often in a virtual environment. And actually, we have to ensure with those organizations where you've got learning agility and environment where you can feel safe and trust trust people to deliver are those that are actually demonstrating really quickly that ability to be agile. And it might be helpful just to, to build on that by kind of saying, well, and, and here are some of the negative indicators, the things that if you see this in yeah. the organization, it probably means they're not agile. You won't be surprised to hear that they're pretty much the opposite of the kind of things that Claire was talking about. But if you have a high command and control culture. If you have a culture that is rooted in, we've never done it like that, you know, that's not how we do things here, we've never done it like that before, you've a problem. If authority and hierarchy are really important organisational frameworks, if supervision is tight, and the tighter supervision, the bigger you have, the, the, la- the less you are likely to have trust, autonomy, and uh, freedom and accountability devolve. And then if you sit in a scarcity mindset, where the job is a managerialist job of allocating scarce resources, whether that's time, money, customer attention, any of those things. So everything is a trade-off in in that context. Then you also will crowd out through the pursuit of efficiency as an objective, a lot of the space for this kind of agility. So you have to move into a mindset of abundance, a growth mindset, if you like, which encourages entrepreneurship, co-creation, 
um, Alex uh, uh, Edmonds, who's the finance professor at LBS, talks about growing the pie. He's talking in the context of how do you combine high levels of sustainability as an organizational goal with high levels of, of financial performance. And he says it's, it's about creating new sources of value, exactly uh, as you were saying, Claire. But I'm interested, I, I mean, you talked about cash uh, earlier on. It's a very practical issue that lots of organizations are currently facing. Um, and, and currently it is a cash issue. In a couple of months' time, it'll probably be a cost issue. Yeah. And you're thinking, when organizations are thinking that hard about cost, they are squeezing this space and they're squeezing the space for freedom and trust and entrepreneurship. How do you defend it? How do you keep it real? How- we had a, an all Cirrus event this morning, and we do it every week. And um, the approach we're taking is being extremely transparent. Mm. So, and, and sharing exactly where we're up to with everything. And, and in many ways, I think the feedback we're getting is, you know, it's very, very positive. And uh, one of my colleagues said, it's quite interesting, isn't it? So uh, actually it feels a little bit like a roller coaster because obviously we're being impacted in exactly the same way as our clients and we're on this little roller coaster. And I think Stephen, I may have mentioned this to you, but um, he said he'd rather be at the funfair and mm. in mm. on the roller coaster than standing outside the funfair and watching. And, and I quite like that analogy because I was thinking, actually, you know, are we are we taking everybody on this roller coaster? But it's also enabled quite a lot of innovation. And just going back to something that you uh, mentioned, Stephen, to to be able to be agile, it's not just the leader. You know, it's not one person. This is leadership all the way through the organization. And and something that we need to be really conscious of is, is about we talk about devolving decision making as close as possible to the customer. And going back to that customer vision and that disruptive thinking, one of the key things we need to really be thinking about is are we listening close enough to the customer? And are we getting the decisions made as close as possible to the customer so that we, we're hearing what's happening in the market? Because right now we have to be doing a huge amount of listening so that we're responding accordingly. You know, people are a bit exhausted at the moment, I think. You know, this whole new, uh, well, actually, you know, we're talking about never normal. But the world that we're living in, in at the moment has many pressures on lots of different people. And managing cash managing costs down, being creative, trying to think differently. That's a lot of pressure on a lot of people. And um, and I think, therefore, trying to be collaborative is going to be really important so you can support each other as well as making sure you're keeping an eye externally on what's happening in the market. And, and, I, and I really like that analogy of, of, of a roller coaster because they're a terrifying thing. But you don't fall. You can be frightened and not fearful on them. And I think that's a really important part of a community. And it sounds like it's not just the leadership in Cirrus providing it to others, it's the community of Cirrus providing reassurance. Because reassurance, even when you're frightened, is a gift of freedom. It's a gift around autonomy. It's a gift of choice. It's an opportunity to experience something. And and if people think that there is an element of adventure maybe not fun but adventure and opportunity in it and that's that must be a paradigm of the kind of, of, of thing that you want to happen as a result of this that transcends the crisis leadership into the community coming together to to, to to deal with it and we see that i mean we see that everywhere now we see a huge burst of people 
innovating, doing new things, dedicating themselves, spending their time on things they've never done, all sorts of volunteering, whether they're distributing food or making masks or, 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 or anything like that. Um, yeah. And it, again, shows not only how adaptable people are, but how inherently creative they are. So the issue on any of these things is not that you are one or the other, you are always all of these. Um, but how do you harness this in a system that creates a really effective high-performance organization. Going back to Claire's point, and the high-performing organizations of the future are creating new sources of customer value, are always listening to the external market. What are other people doing? What are other people thinking about? What are clients and customers asking for? What do clients and customers need that they're not actually asking for? And so that framing away from the, we deal with the internal stuff and we deal with our stuff as well as we can, as transparently as we can, as honestly as we can, recognizing that means that we actually have no answers. No one has any answers. Anybody who says they have an answer at the moment is guilty of magical or nursery thinking. They cannot be saying anything fundamentally meaningful, but we can have communities, we can yeah. have purpose, we can have, can have things that we value, and we can remain true to them. So in, in a sense, agile doesn't mean eternally fluid, it means coming back again and again and again to the things that really matter. And those things that really matter are ways of enabling people to do more, to do better, to think creatively, to innovate. So would you mind if I summarise with just eight characteristics going back to Chris's Chris's question? Would that be okay? Sure. Yeah, because um, I think you're, you're right. And it's not. And one of the things actually that I like about what you're just saying there, Stephen, is this importance of community. And there's some things we don't want to lose, isn't there? There is that, that absolute community that has happened and we're observing every day. But, um, you know, some of the characteristics we observe of leaders and organisations is that encouraging that disruptive thinking, making sure that we're thinking about the customer vision. Then something that we haven't really discussed that's really important this time is, you know, ruthlessly prioritising. Because actually, right now, we could be running around trying to get on every ride in the funfair. But actually, you can only really focus on getting on one at a time. And sometimes that's really hard when you're under this, under this pressure. So it depends on whether you like roller coasters or teacups, I suppose. And then we've got to think about performance improvement. And that could be thinking about cost. It's about you know tweaking. It's about changing habits. Um, we talked earlier about devolving decision-making down through the organization as close as possible to the customer. We talked about community and collaboration. And then importantly, those core fundamental platforms around, are we creating a safe environment? You know, are people feeling safe? Are we able to learn from what we're doing? So those are the sort of you know, core characteristics, sort of you like the eight characteristics that we would see of agile organizations and agile leaders. And um, and right now, they are, I, I agree with you, Stephen, actually, what's incredible is how we're observing so many, such amazing leadership from every single level in an organization. And, and I watch with awe um, how the NHS is responding. Mm. It's quite phenomenal. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's, it's an, an extraordinary um, tribute to, to all of them and their, their huge efforts and their bravery. Can I ask, though, so we, we've talked about this, this kind of system and the, the enablers that are so important. If I'm an HR person sitting in an organisation that is not like this, that is perhaps more static, more hierarchical, less flexible, less adaptable, what advice would you give me? What should I be doing? That's a good question. And actually, I've just been um, I was speaking with um, somebody yesterday who 
NHL director who I think she gave a really, really good example. She's been trying very hard within a fairly traditional environment to really shift the culture, have a conversation about what we refer to as a leadership brand or a leadership framework. And and, and also at a, at a slightly more micro level desperately trying hard to get um, some recruitment software in, some tracking software in. And um, and all those things that she's been trying to get going over the last few months, given the situation, given the fact that external factors have changed their working world and that there is a pressure and a need to do things differently, now is a massive opportunity to go and genuinely Go and ask the questions with the board and the exec about the culture that we need to create. But also, in many ways, I'd be highlighting the things that are working really well. So um, our head of engagement often refers to this virtual cookie jar. And, um, and in that cookie jar, if you ask people to put in, you know, what are the things that you're not going to want to lose from this experience and capture those, but also capture what is it you're missing from that experience, from from this new experience, and capture those. And that's a really good base to start to talk about, you know, what is the culture we want to be changing? And every HR director out there where the organization often requires this leadership, it's the people that are making these businesses survive. You know, it's really very much, I think, the HR's director's opportunity to, to, to capture this right right now because it's the people that are out there driving this change and and, and responding in such an agile way which I think their, their voice will be listened to much more so than perhaps before as long as we keep commercial you know we've got to be realistic and so I think now is a really good time to to be having those conversations and I would certainly be taking that that opportunity with both hands. I think it, I agree. It, it, it seems, I mean, this, it, it, I've heard this characterized as a, as a great accelerator. Um, and we're certainly seeing trends accelerating. We talked about a remote working, a trend that would perhaps have taken five to 10 years um, to become ubiquitous. And, and, and that overnight it is. And I'm sure there'll be some retrenchment, but fundamentally that genie is well out of the bottle. But if you're accelerating, tre- accelerating trends can be both good and bad. And if you're a business that a model is threatened, uh, it accelerates that decline as well. So it, it feels as if it requires an acceleration as well of courage and of foresight and of ability to engage on some of yeah. these properly strategic questions at a point at which it's very difficult for any, any, any executive team, any leaders not to acknowledge the people space and the importance of it to, to their survival. So maybe this is an opportunity, as you say, to go in there with a good, clear story about where value is being created, what that means, and, and some of these trends and how they impact. And you don't need to become an agile system organization <laughs> overnight. You just need to make some progress do some more delegation of authority and empowerment, to do some more about reassurance, improve communications and have more leadership examples. Yeah. So we're just coming actually towards the uh, the end of the podcast, which is absolutely flown by, I have to say. And it's been fascinating listening to, to both of you guys. I just had a final sort of question just before we wrap up, if that's OK, which is around the future. So when we're having this conversation in 12 months time around agile leadership and how businesses have changed and how they've evolved post COVID, what does the world look like? Who wants to pick that one up first? 
Stephen, would you like to pick that one up first? Or would you like well, to well, why don't I have a go? And if it's a terrible answer, I could have another go after you. <laughs> um, what do I think? I, I mean, there is no such thing as a return to uncertainty. There never was anyway. To, yesterday, it, things were as uncertain tomorrow as they are now. The only thing we know now is that there is a pandemic, a big global event that's happened. It was always there as a threat. It remains a threat uh, in the future. So we have a greater risk awareness and we have a greater sense of what uncertainty actually means. It makes us realise that forecasting is fundamentally a fool's game, always was really. Uh, you can have plans and you can move very consciously, I think, from, from planning for specifics to preparing for opportunities and unknown outcomes. I think this challenges a lot of our historical managerialist approaches to running organizations, which were fundamentally driven by an efficiency paradigm, just-in-time thinking. And it need, means that building in capacity, building in just-in-case ability and resourcing is, is very important uh, because the permanent goal of sustainability and resilience has become highlighted. I and mean, it always was there as a goal. And some sectors and some organizations uh, have already done that, but many, many haven't. So I think there will be a move from uh, efficiency to resilience as an organisational outcome. I think there are clearly, there is as, as great an opportunity for bad outcomes as there are good outcomes, but I think working from anywhere will become something that organisations demand. That's the point at which it becomes ubiquitous. They'll do it because they see it drives performance. They see now, and we can demonstrate that there are. it actually is a very efficient way of working. It may be that it's not as good on creativity and innovation. I mean, we don't know. There's, not, there's no real research, I think, on, on, on virtual working and how it, how it affects uh, overall organization performance. But we can do stuff about that. You can build that in. You still bring people together. It also means you can access talent anywhere. So you don't have to just hire people who want to come and work for you in Birmingham. You can hire people anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. I think there are some areas that have been thrown into high relief, which will be really interesting. And at, at the beginning, uh, Claire, you, we were talking about the bank holiday and what we'd done, and you made well, well, hang on, was it even a bank holiday? It felt the same. Patterns of work are changed, and that that old model of a working week, which is a post-industrial or industrial revolution model of you go to the factory five, six days a week, you get half a day off, and that, I mean that's that maybe that is an unnecessary constraint as well. So we talk about freedom to work from anywhere. Maybe we have freedom to work anytime as well. And that can't mean that we give all of our time to our employer. It has to mean that those boundaries are differently drawn. And then the other really interesting boundary that needs to be differently drawn is the experience that we've all had of working in families together often with you know with 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 your partner maybe with your grown children working maybe with certainly with your school age children working as well and just seeing each other at work and isn't that interesting and I wonder how many of us have looked at our partners or our kids have gone oh so that's you at work you do <laughs> um, yeah. and I don't know. I mean, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, I think it's an interesting thing because it would be much better if we're not another person at work. We're just us being us at our best. And where it's great to have your dog or your cat on your knee and it's great for your kids to come in. But that point aside, the other thing which is really interesting is... It, and it'll be very interesting to see research on this after the event. The role, what's happened to men and women working together. Um, what 
in practice, when there's a conflict over access to broadband for a Zoom call, which one dominates and why? Who's doing most of the homeschooling? And I'd like us to have a good, you know, essentially a good social conversation about, we've all seen this now, and we've seen it in a way that makes it harder for us to ignore. Have we got those balances right? And are, is the stuff that we should be doing about rethinking family and work roles, family and work responsibilities? I think that would be a, a, a really good uh, national conversation, if you like, a social conversation to flow out of this. I, I, I agree, Stephen. And I think you raised something that's really on my mind, particularly with my lecture role, um, which is about the whole concept of levelling up. And that's levelling up the whole social agenda, um, how do we make sure that we have an inclusive digital infrastructure, which we don't have at the moment? So, you know, just in my region, we have school children and young people that don't have access to broadband and, and, and laptops, et cetera. So we've got to try and make sure that we're levelling up and giving everybody the same opportunity. And also the north quite often gets impacted in these kind of crises more than the south. And all of the research has often demonstrated that. So how do we make sure we level up that agenda? gender but also if you think about that leveling up that you just mentioned in um, you know the gender environment as well and see how that's playing out and then there's also um, just thinking about those with kids and without kids it's definitely been easier to have no kids at home than if you had kids at home <laughs> whether you're male or female um, so there is actually an opportunity and also a concern about how do we make sure in our future world that we are having that dialogue and we are having that discussion and that debate and it has to be very open um and the other and the other thing i mean there's all sorts of things that are going to be impacted and, and stephen's covered them brilliantly so I, I i shan't repeat um but i uh, just want to add to it in that um i had the fortune to be part of a, a conversation the other day where um with some fairly highly unionized environments um where they were saying that they're having some great dialogue around changing working practice uh, for the first time, because actually there has been a need for flexibility and it's opening up that conversation. So, again, I think we've got an opportunity perhaps to, to be thinking. So if we keep doing that agile leader piece around, you know, dis disrupt, plan, execute, learn, disrupt, plan, execute, learn. It might be a really short cycle, but if we keep on doing that, each time we're learning something from some of those conversations around leveling up or changing working practices, accelerating digitization, I think we've, we could come out of this well, mm. because we also have to take into consideration that the future holds, as Stephen also just mentioned, many other opportunities to respond we've got covid brexit and the big one where we do really need to be aware of is climate change and that yeah. is really our big agenda and we're going to have to be agile to make sure that we keep that absolutely top of mind as we go yeah. forward that's but yeah i mean absolutely right guys thank you very very much today this has been a really really great insight into uh, agile leadership it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on not least i've learned that stephen doesn't really like roller coasters i certainly would prefer a roller coaster to a teacup ride i have to admit um it, it's been as i said thank you very much stephen for coming on 
Thank you very much, Claire, for coming on as well. Uh, this has been the HR, uh, the Guild of HR Professionals uh, in the Spotlight podcast. You can find us via the Guild of HR Professionals website, which is um, hrprofessionals.org.uk. I've absolutely butchered that, so uh, I'm sure we'll put something in the show notes. Uh, but forward slash podcast is where you can find the, uh, the live link. Uh, that's also available via iTunes, available via TuneIn and Spotify as well. You just need to search for uh, the HR on the offensive feed and then you'll see the In the Spotlight podcast coming on. But thank you very much to Stephen. Thank you very much to Claire. And we will see you next time on the Guild of HR Professionals In the Spotlight podcast. Goodbye. <laughs>